When the pastor actually asked me to give the sermon today, I was not sure what to talk about. Uh, I lacked the words. And I was thinking very hard, because you know what kind of date we have today. So after thinking long and hard, I came to the conclusion the pastor probably picked me for this specific date because he knew I was a history buff, because he knew I liked history. So today, you will get a little bit of history lesson. For the older generation among us, it's probably a reminder or a remembrance of what we have seen and experienced. For the younger generation, it may explain why certain things today are the way they are. So here we go. Embrace yourself. We get a little bit of history. Um, and we start with the 12th of September, 2001, at 6 a.m. in the morning. Nothing happened. I was on, Jonathan had a habit to actually use BBC News as his alarm clock. So on the 12th of September at 6 a.m. in the morning, his alarm went off with BBC News, as you just heard, and he heard something which was unbelievable. So he ran to our bedroom and said, have you heard? Have you heard? And because we actually retired the evening before relatively early, we hadn't heard. So what we did, we switched on the TV. And you can imagine what we saw. Over and over and over again, the famous photos and the famous movies. And I actually, when I went into Google and looked up some of these, uh, these videos of that time, I even found the video where you can actually see the plane flying into the South Tower. It's very, very heartening. It's very sad. But this is what, we hap what happened. Initial thoughts, of course, of course, was it was an accident. But when 15 minutes later, the second plane actually flew into the South Tower, it was very clear it is not an accident. It was deliberate. Interestingly, the terrorists who used the planes as a weapon actually were very clever. They chose long-haul planes, they chose big planes because they had more fuel. So which meant that when they were flying into the planes, into the towers, the explosion was actually bigger than if they had taken a smaller plane. Now here we go, this is another famous picture. But it was not only, and we tend to forget, it was not only the two planes flying into the World Trade Center in New York, it were two more planes. And we tend to forget about the two. One of them flew actually into the Pentagon, and the other one was destined for the capital. But the passengers in that plane managed to overpower the crew, and West, uh, sorry, to overpower the, the, um, te uh, the terrorists and wrestled with the terrorists that they finally actually crashed the plane into the ground and not into the capital. But having said that, all passengers on that plane died too. 
So the world watched in awe. Unbelievable, never seen before, unthinkable. How is this possible? I remember when Jonathan actually came and we saw this. Uh, it took, didn't take me very long. I got dressed. I rushed to the office. At that time, I was uh, the regional head for UBS in Southeast Asia. And UBS in Singapore had a, one of the largest trading rooms uh, in Asia with 150 uh, traders, uh, especially foreign exchange. I mean, UBS still today is one of the largest foreign exchange traders in the world. So I knew that with this happening, there must be upheavals in the market. There must be something going on. So we were all afraid, what does it mean for the financial markets? I rushed to the office. The head trader was actually already in the office, uh, in, the, in the dealing room. He was one of the very few. It was probably about not even 7 o'clock in the morning. And I asked him, what's, what's going to happen? Nobody knew, of course. Nobody had an idea. But he said, for now, everything after Asia had opened, everything seemed to be calm. And as we know, in hindsight, uh, the US decided to close the stock market for a week and uh, monitor the uh, financial streams very carefully. So actually, the financial impact of that 2001 disaster was relatively limited. This is the famous picture one day later. That's all what is left of the two twin towers on, of the World Trade Center. Altogether, about 3,000 people uh, lost their lives. It was probably the biggest shock for America. The Americans called it war on their own soil. But it was not only the biggest shock for America, it was also the biggest shock for the world. Something the world had never seen before. And I would dare to say it was the beginning of a changing world, and we all supported it. Because we didn't want to sit in a high-rise building where another plane flew in. We were okay when governments started to watch the moves, to observe the area, to make sure that everybody behaved properly. And something like that cannot happen anymore. We did not mind that cameras popped up at specific corners, at specific places which were critical, because we didn't want to sit in the next London underground, which blew up, or in the next London bus, which, was, which exploded. Or we didn't want to sit in a train in Spain, which was blown up with 200 lives lost. So we were OK. We actually welcomed to keep us safe. It was all under the idea of keeping us safe. But you know, being watched is not new. And so here we go. We look a little bit into history. Almost 20 years earlier, on September 1st, 1983, 
we have Korean Airlines, as it was called then, today it's Korean Air, was on its way from New York to Seoul, Korea. Flight number 007 made a refueling stop in Anchorage before it took off for Seoul. I'm not sure whether some of you can still remember. The flight pass was supposed to, as you can see on the map, I hope it is visible, you see the dotted line that was supposed to be the flight path. The flight was supposed to take, but in reality, and for some unexplainable reasons, there are a number of theories why it happened, the flight path actually went more westerly, and in that sense, flew over the Soviet Union territory. You can see that, it's, uh, and after it crossed the Sakhalin Island, a Soviet fighter jet shot it down with 270 passengers on board. It was actually already evening, so um, neither the pilots realized that they were on the wrong path, nor did they see the fighter jets which claimed that they actually made contact with the plane to warn them that they were in the wrong territory. Um, so from that point of view, um, the Russians flatly denied, or the Soviet U the Unionists, I must say, flatly denied that they actually shot the, down the plane. It was only after the United States presented, intercepted Se Soviet radio communications between the fighter jet pilot and the headquarter of the Soviets that the Russians admitted that it was them having shot down the plane and knowing very well that it was a passenger plane. It was very embarrassing because the tapes were played in the UN assembly and the Soviets were stunned that the Americans actually had this capability of listening to their radio command within military posts. But let's go back a little bit further. And here, I think it's the older generation which remembers. In, 1970, sorry, in 1957, the Soviet Union shot the first satellite into orbit on a rocket like this which could also double up as an intercontinental, on, intercontinental ballistic missile. Actually, the um, satellite was called Sputnik. Very aptly, the first COVID-19 vaccine by the Russians was called Sputnik. For the Americans, it was a shock. For the world, it was a shock that the uh, Soviet Union had the capability of shooting a satellite into the orbit with such rockets. And in 1960, in the, during the election campaign in the US, the Democratic candidate for the American presidency, it was John F. Kennedy, accused the incumbent US administration under President Dwight Eisenhower for having allowed the US to fall behind the Soviet and for, and, uh, for allowing a missile gap with the Soviets having more than 50 
um, ballistic uh, rockets. Now, President Eisenhower knew differently. Because the US spy satellite program re revealed that the Soviets probably max had five ballistic missiles. Max five. But he couldn't say because he would have revealed that the US have the capability to watch from the space what the Soviets were up to. So he was willing to sacrifice the White House for the precious information which he was not willing to give up. And in fact, it was correct. John F. Kennedy won the presidency as a Democrat because that accusation towards the Republicans, because Dwight Eisenhower was a Republican, that, president, that um, accusation made for good election campaign. And the frightened American public elected him as the next president. Now, 60 years ago, as we can see, the handover from one president to another was obviously a more civilized affair than it was uh, one year ago. Um, at that time, they could still shake hands with each other. So here we go, finished history. Or maybe still a little bit. Watching others is not new, as we can see. It's been here for quite some time. But it's gotten more sophisticated over time. In 1949, George Orwell wrote a book with the title 1984. And in that book, he describes a society where every citizen is under constant surveillance by the authorities and is constantly reminded of this by the slogan, Big Brother is watching you. Now, what sounds like the stuff of spy novels or spy movies is today reality. This is a picture taken anywhere in the world, whether here in Singapore or whether in the UK or whether in Europe or anywhere else. We're used to cameras watching us. They watch every corner. They watch every move. We're under constant surveillance. So George Orwell was just 70 years ahead of time. But it's reality. We got used to it. And we don't mind, because it's all for our safety. Now, do you believe me when I tell you that someone can see whether you like your egg in the morning, sunny side up, easy over, scrambled, or as omelette? I see some heads nodding. So here we go. What was world historic in 1960, or in 1983, or even in 2001? Actually, today we know that the US knew that something was going to happen. 
but they had different informations by different agencies and they failed to connect the dots. So therefore, they only knew that something was going to happen, but they did not know what. Today we know that. But at that time, that's why September 11 was possible. But what was sophisticated at that time and was actually world historic is today staff, stuff for student projects. You don't believe me? If you know how, you can do it. And the buzzword for it is OSINT, or in other words, Open Source Intelligence. As the name says it, it is entirely open and access accessible by everyone. It is no longer the stuff of spy novels or spy movies. You can do it too. You need to know how, but you can look whether your neighbor likes his or her egg, sunny side up, easy over, scrambled, or as omelet. You can do that because it's publicly available information. Now, although OSINT is open to everyone, you probably need to be some sort of computer geek. You need to know how. So your laptop at home alone will probably not do it. But your computer room will probably have to look a little bit like this one. But OSINT actually helped to identify and to verify that the Malaysian airliner number 17, which was shot down by Russians over the Ukraine, was actually confirmed that it was the Russians, despite the fact that they still deny it, because OSINT helped a group of lay professionals to find out what really happened. And they can prove that actually it was Russian mercenaries with the support of Russia with a Russian anti-missile weapon. Now, if I tell you you can do it and it is easy, actually easier than you think, you will probably not believe me, especially not when you see that I was born pre-computer age. I still use paper, you know, for the sermon instead of... Uh, 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 an iPad or anything like that, so I'm very old-fashioned, but yet I can. And you can too. Because this is your OSINT. This is your open source intelligent. And it's easy. You can actually consult it every day, as often as you like. So here we go. I'm trying to make a spiritual analysis by being watched all the time and knowing that you're watched. Now, you remember what we read as the um, scripture reading. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. Have you ever thought about it that you actually forget all the cameras, that you're watched even without the camera? 
all the time, every move, everything? Why does it bother us when 9-11, 20 years ago, led to a gradual surveillance of all our moves today, when we tend to forget, and I'm pretty sure you do as much as I do, forget that the Lord is watching us every minute. Is he watching us to find the mistakes we make? Or is he watching us to help us? Well, I leave, I leave the conclusion to that up to you after I tell you a, a real-life story. And I think part of it, even my wife hasn't heard yet. In 1973, that shows you how old I am, I actually traveled with a group of Swiss friends. In, uh, we were six in uh, three... Um, VW camper vans, the Alaskan Highway. The Alaskan Highway goes from the south of Canada all the way to uh, Alaska, Fairbanks, about the middle in Alaska, and it's altogether about 2,500 kilometers. So we, tr we met in the southern part of Canada, and we drove to Dawson Creek, which is supposed to be the beginning of the Alaskan Highway, and we spent Sabbath there. And we went to church. And in the church, which was a very small church, there were probably not more than 50 people, so something similar like uh, we have here today, there, was a, there were a group of young people like us who spoke Swiss. And it turned out that uh, they belonged to a Swiss family who emigrated from Switzerland to Canada about 50 years before. But they kept on speaking the Swiss language in the family. So one church member said, oh, there are some other people who are from Switzerland. And so we were introduced to this Swiss-speaking friends. And as it so happened, they were farmers. Um, uh, and they invited us to come and stay on their farm. Uh, so here you have a picture of a Canadian farm and spend Sabbath there and prepare our cars for the journey on the Alaskan Highway. Now, uh, here is a bit an idea how an Alaskan Highway looks like, but this is a modern picture. During our time, 45 years ago, actually the, um, the road was not paved. It was all gravel. And it was gravel for 2,500 kilometers. And you had heavy trucks coming opposite you because they were carrying locks and other things. So you were bound to have cracked windshields. So in order to protect our windshields of the VW vans, we actually used tight um, mesh fence to cover the windshields in order to make sure that when a gravel, a stone hit the windshield, it would not immediately break the windshield. So on Sunday morning, we were, pre we were, um, we were um, um, busy preparing the cars and making ourselves ready for the long journey because on that 2,500 kilometers, there were very, very few villages along, and you had hundreds of kilometers without any living soul. It was just nature, forest, mountains, lakes, and nature. 
uh, very unique, very beautiful, I can say. Now, to backtrack a little bit, uh, while we were on this farm, um, one of the sons of this Swiss family, they were actually newly Adventists. They had just uh, become church members uh, a year or so before. He said he wanted to get some deeper spiritual insights, and he wanted to go to an Adventist college, and he asked us where to go to. And I don't know, but my, uh, two of my cousins actually had went, went to Newbold College in the UK. And uh, it was for Europeans, it was very famous. It was the place to go if you wanted to learn English. So I just suggested, why don't you go to Newbold College? I'd been there. I hadn't studied there, but I visited. I'd been there. It is in a lovely countryside. It's about... Uh, 90 kilometers outside of London. It's very pleasant. So I said, why don't you go to uh, Newbold College? They also have um, um, Bible courses and things like that. Um, why don't you do that? Now, before I set off for this trip, there was a girl in my home church in Switzerland who asked me where she shall go to learn better English. And you know what's coming. I said, go to New, uh, New World College. And I think the rest is history. The two got to know each other, and inadvertently, I became a matchmaker. <laughs> they married. Okay, now, three years later, in 1976, I decided to interrupt my studies because I wanted a change of environment. And by the way, traveling is supposed to be a good education. So I decided to take a year off and travel the US and Canada with a Greyhound bus. At that time, this was the thing to do. $99, you got six month, uh, uh, you got a six month um, pass, and you could travel the entire network of Greyhound buses, and they were crisscrossing the United States and Canada all over. So and I decided to make my friends home. They had married in the meanwhile, and they were living back in Canada to make my friends home as the starting point. So I went to Canada, and it was in the deepest winter. And uh, it was about three weeks. I decided to stay there before I would take off with the first bus uh, towards the south. Now, in these three winters as a farmer, you cannot work on a farm because it's all stiff frozen. So my friend worked as a woodcutter in the deepest of the forest of Canada. He did the cutting, and I drove the truck you see in the background, uh, pulling the logs which had been cut to a central place. Now, you know, today I cringe about the thought cutting trees, because when I look down from my apartment, or even in the Thompson Road, actually, when you go a little bit from here, they're right now cutting old trees, which are probably 100 years old. And it hurts, but at that time, I must say, it was 45 years ago, we didn't quite have that feeling. And there were so many of these trees, you know. <laughs> so I actually pulled the logs to a central place where they were stored uh, for a little while. And of course, it was cold. It was 25 to 30 degrees minus, so the wood froze. But nevertheless, work had to go on. So uh, the wood was actually cut into planks. The Americans actually call it two-by-fours. It is uh, planks which you primarily built for construction or use for construction. Uh, 
And I can tell you these planks, when they were cut, because the wood was frozen, were heavy, very heavy. Uh, and although you had fluffs, and, uh, um, but um, the fingers were stiff frozen. It was, I mean, the days were nice, but it was just cold. So I did this for three weeks. I can tell you after three weeks, I knew what I had done. And I was glad I was on the road in a bus, you know. But before we get there, uh, one evening, uh, we, also, we always had to shuttle about 60 kilometers in total, about 30 kilometers one way from my friend's place to the sawmill in the forest. And uh, now 30 kilometers in Canadian perspective is not much. You know, Canada is so huge and so vast, it doesn't make any difference. But still, you had to travel a road like this in no man's land. It was just forest and nothing. So we did this every day in the morning to the sawmill, in the evening back to my friend's place. The owner of the sawmill actually lived close by at the sawmill, so he had an easy commute. He could walk. We had to drive. Now, one evening as we were driving back, it was already dark. We were about 10 kilometers into the trip. We were running out of gas. It's probably the least place you want to be running out of gas. Now, my friend who is a farmer and a very good handyman, you know, he knows how to fix trucks and uh, do all sorts of things. He had this ingenious idea that uh, antifreeze liquid bottle, antifreeze liquid, has similar <laughs> effect like gasoline. But you cannot put it into the tank of the car because it's too little. We only had a small bottle. So it had to be dripped into the cylinders to make the engine run. Yeah, well, when you're out there, 10 kilometers in, in no man's land, you come up with all sorts of ideas. So we tried. And of course, it was me who had to stand on the bumper in front of the car with an open hood to drip the liquid into the cylinder so that he could actually look through the, the little gap between the steering wheel and the open hood, could drive slowly backwards towards the sawmill because the sawmill was closer to um, the destination. It was closer for us than actually their home. So we did. I mean, thinking about it today, it was absolutely crazy. But we did. And it worked. We made five kilometers. Then the bottle was empty. So we still had about five kilometers to go to the sawmill. So he decided, you guys, I mean his wife and uh, me, to stay in the car. He would walk back to the sawmill to get some uh, canister with spare gasoline for, um, to, uh, for us to get back to home. So off he went. He disappeared. We were sitting in the car talking about old stories of our hometown, home church, things like that. Minutes passed, and it got colder and colder. And after an hour, we were stiff frozen, and there was still no salvage, no rescue in sight. 
So I eventually decided it's probably better we walk and keep warm than actually freezing to death in the car. So I managed to convince my friend, also his wife, let's walk to the sawmill. So we got out of the car and we walked. We must have walked relatively fast because, because um, we arrived at the sawmill in about 40 minutes for about a five kilometer uh, distance. And uh, we must have been fast because she complained even a week later about uh, aching muscles. But I pulled her most of the time uh, because to make sure we get there. Now, when we arrived at the sawmill, interestingly, when we arrived at the sawmill, interestingly, my friends and the owner of the sawmill, they were not very happy to see us. In fact, they were frozen in horror. And they scolded us. And I must say, I had no clue why. I thought that was kind of funny. Why? Now we're here, we're all safe. What is this all about? Because he and the owner of the sawmill were just about to enter the car with a canister of uh, gasoline to come to our place. Now, on the way back to the car, I realized why they were frozen in horror. They were, we actually crossed a pack of wolves. And after a little while, we crossed another one. And after a little while, we crossed the third one. Now, it dawned on me that we were in wolf's territory. Obviously, we were watched the whole time, but we didn't realize. We didn't hear anything. We were probably too busy walking, but we were oblivious to any danger. And I must say, in hindsight, I'm very grateful and very thankful that we actually made it because it could have been completely different. You know, nobody ever said anything that there were wolves. It didn't even cross my mind. And my, my friend also walked back to the sawmill. But what I did not know, he had a little gun, a small gun with him. So he could defend himself. We couldn't. Now, having said that, I'm very, very glad that we also have this promise in the Bible. It's Psalm 121, verses 7 and 8. The Lord keeps you from all harm and watches over your life. The Lord keeps watching over you as you come and go both now and forever. So here we go back. It is... A promise, it is something which we should remind ourselves. Rather than getting hung up about the cameras we see at the corner, we know that we have a much greater power who looks after us every minute. Now I'm conscious of the time, but yet um, I would like to um, close with a poem. And you're probably all familiar with but I felt it was quite fitting. So give me a couple more minutes. It's the footsteps in the sand. One night, a man had a dream, and here is what he recounted. 
I was walking along the beach with my Lord. Across the dark sky flashed scenes from my life. For each scene, I noticed two sets of footprints in the sand, one belonging to me and one to my Lord. I noticed that at many times along the path of my life, especially at the very lowest and saddest times, there was only one set of footprint. This troubled me. So I asked the Lord, Lord, you said once I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all the way. But I noticed that during the saddest and most troublesome times of my life, there was only one set of footprints. I don't understand why. How could you desert me when I needed you most? How would you leave me when I was most in need of you? The Lord whispered, my precious, my precious child, I love you and I will never leave you. Never, ever during your trials and testings. When you saw only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. Thank you.
Father in heaven, we thank you that we know we're being watched. We thank you that you watch over us every day, every minute, every moment, that nothing is hidden from you, and that gives us the comfort that we know that you also protect us from harm's way and that you be with us at every minute. Thank you, and please let us remember this every day and every minute. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.